welcome back to the Rupa Subramanya show. It's so good to have you with me again. Uh, thank you for tuning in as always. I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, unfortunately, last week I couldn't record uh, a show because I was traveling. I was away in India visiting my parents um, and things got a bit hectic at the last minute. Uh, but I'm back in business this week. And uh, so it's uh, great to have you with me uh, once again. Uh, and we have a great show coming up. So stay tuned. As we head towards the end of the year, uh, one of the big stories of this past year has been the abject failure of the legacy media to fairly and in an unbiased way cover major events, such as the Freedom Convoy protests, which took place here in Ottawa, to the recent revelations contained in the Twitter files, which have been largely ignored by the mainstream media. Surprise, surprise. My guest today is extremely qualified to speak uh, on what's wrong with the legacy media and can independent media establishments such as True North or Free Press, both of which I'm proud to be associated with, can fill the gap. So please welcome Tara Henley, a former CBC journalist who exited our state-owned broadcaster and now publishes um, on her Substack called Lean Out and hosts a great podcast called Lean Out. So please welcome Tara Henley to the show. Hey Tara, welcome welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for joining me. Um, I just wanna get straight into uh, our topic for today. Um, you know, these past few months, we've seen just how rotten the state of the legacy media is and the fact that it's independent journalists and independent media establishments that are, bre- uh, that are breaking, I think, most of the important stories and providing what I think is some pretty fair and balanced coverage of events that are tre- treated with a definite slant um, or bias by a lot of the legacy uh, establishment media. Um, could you uh, share with us um, the journey you took starting out with the CBC, uh, which doesn't get more establishment than that, to what disturbed or alienated you from their uh, mode of operating and inspired you to become independent? Mm. Well, Ruba, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Um, and I think for me, the um, legacy media, I had worked, I've been a journalist for 20, 21 years now. I have worked in magazines, newspapers, radio, television, and digital. Um, And for the last, since 2013, when I went to George Strombolopoulos tonight at the CBC um, as a producer on that show, and then went into radio, worked in current affairs radio in uh, both Vancouver and Toronto, took a break to write my book and and then came back and worked again in both Vancouver and Toronto. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was very much a rank and file journalist at the CBC. I worked on a lot of different shows. Um, I did a lot of different roles in the newsroom. And uh, when I quit, I was on contract until December 2022 as a full-time current affairs producer on Ontario Morning, a a small regional show. Um, And I think that what I had observed, um, and I've said this before, and I think it's a really good way of saying it because I think it really encapsulates my views is just that at the CBC, the, the woke quote unquote woke voice had always been present in the room. And I certainly have no problem with that being one of the views reflected. Um, But, you know, after George Floyd and in this sort of extreme moment that we were in, in the pandemic, that, that, that voice came to dominate story meetings came to dominate interactions in the building. It just came to be the only voice in the room. 
And I found it very concerning. Um, and I found it harder and harder to get different views on the air. And uh, I won't say that I was silenced. I argued every day behind the mm-hmm. scenes. Um, I did not talk about it publicly at all. I, I, um, I, I did have an on-air column that I did once a month. And uh, I, I really was careful about what I said in public. Um, but I did argue behind the scenes all the time. And uh, so I didn't feel silenced. I felt stifled. Mm-hmm. I felt that the environment was not conducive to doing my job properly. And there were a lot of kind of forces converging on the newsroom all at once. Um, you know, there's top-down pressures, there was bottom-up pressures. But the main thing that I think I was grappling with was groupthink. Mm. And um and I've written about this a lot over the last year. So uh, eventually I did make the decision to leave the CBC. One of the turning points for me was about vaccine mandates. I did not agree with our coverage as a network. Um, and I felt like because the CBC is such an important institution in this country, that it was um, useful to have a public conversation about that. Because I was getting so many complaints Mm -hmm. from the public, I felt like it was important to talk about that. So uh, give me an example of what you thought was groupthink at the CBC. And then also, can you tell us uh, what you found specifically problematic about the CBC's coverage of the uh, vaccine, uh, of the pandemic in general, and uh, the vaccine mandates? I'll start with the vaccine mandates is I just okay. felt that this is a sweeping change to society. It has a huge mm-hmm. um, implication on people's livelihoods, on their ability to provide for their families. And I would have liked to see more questioning of that. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time that those vaccine mandates came in, there were some signals that critical thinking was required at that time. We were seeing breakthrough infections, for example. Vaccine mandates rest on the premise that vaccines prevent transmission. Mm -hmm. And if we're seeing a large amount of breakthrough cases in the ICU, breakthrough cases in hospitalizations, breakthrough cases in the statistics, that indicates that maybe vaccines don't stop transmission. So I would have liked to have a more fulsome conversation about that. I would have liked to hear more conversation about the risk reward analysis. We've seen that come out in the last, you know, six months. There was a paper Kevin Bardosh did Mm -hmm about looking at the risk-reward analysis for the vaccine mandates in the universities, for example. A lot of questions that could be asked, um, and I didn't see them being asked on a large scale. And I felt like our coverage um, often uncritically accepted the kind of party line of public health, that that was like a line in the sand, these are experts, we have to just go with what the experts say. But public health people are like other human beings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They they are perhaps afraid. They are Mm. perhaps overly cautious. They are perhaps dealing with political stuff behind the scenes. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen in big institutions and particularly in a moment of crisis like the one that we were in. Mm -hmm. Um, I just felt that there should have been a lot more critical thinking. So what... um you know, what is the, what, what is happening here? Why is there this group think? Um, is it driven by ideology? Is it driven by the fact that uh, you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you? Uh, obviously, the CBC is uh, state funded. And, uh, and, you know, I wonder to what extent um, that 
um, is you know is 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 um, correlated with uh, some of what we're seeing. Um, you know, you mentioned the vaccine mandates, and you know one of the things you know, and this is something that I've written about quite extensively about the vaccine mandates. Is that you know when you speak to uh, uh, you know some of the unvaccinated, they always um, you know they, they always point this out to me, which is pretty shocking actually. Uh, which is you know nobody in the mainstream media ever came up to us and asked us how are we going to put food on the table. Uh, you know the fact that these mandates are going to come into force. Nobody spoke to us. You know how are we going to live our lives? How are we going to uh, take care of our families? And uh, and nobody actually reached out to these people. In fact, uh, the people that they were reaching out to were the public health officials, um, and um, and 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 you know and government officials, obviously. Uh, but the people that this was directly affecting in in a pretty pretty significant way were just left out of the conversation. And uh, you know, and no wonder they 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 descended. Um, upon Ottawa, uh, you know, t- trying to get their voices heard, uh, and that uh, to me makes total sense. Uh, uh, but, but you know, just back to the question, like, why? What? What is it that's driving this group think? Um, and and you know, and were there dissenting voices within the CBC on the vaccine mandate situation? First of all, like, you know, how are these things? Co- how do these things come together? You know, does an editor decide no, we're not going to go there? Uh, we're not going to touch the subject. We're not going to talk about, um, um, you know, the fact that uh, the vaccines are no longer protecting people, or that you know because because breakthrough infections are happening. Who who makes these decisions? And is there really any kind of dissent with people saying, look, you know, I think I think we got to bring in all aspects of this situation uh, into the conversation. I think that's only fair. Uh, is that even happening? Well, I think there's a number of factors to consider here. I mean, the first one being, and this is one that I've spoken about a lot, is precarious employment. And so uh, the last number I heard was that the CBC is made up of about a quarter of precariously employed workers. I was certainly in that position sometimes myself. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, I was on contract when I left. But um, those people will be perhaps getting shifts two weeks at a time. Okay. And you're, you know, you don't know if you're working past those two weeks, you could have been working on that show for a year, mm-hmm. but your shifts come to three weeks at a time. And um, in order to continue to keep working, you really need your show producer to be wanting you to be requesting you. So there's a huge um, structural incentive to kind of get along and to not rock, rock the boat too much. Um, and I think that if, you know, if you don't know if you're working past two weeks, yeah. you, you just don't have the room. Most people are not going to kind of jeopardize their livelihood to fight for a story or to fight for a perspective or to say something really unpopular in the newsroom. So that's that's one aspect of it. I, I think there's also another aspect of the over-reliance on Twitter and that you have all of us just sort of marinating in this stew of one perspective all the time and mistaking that for the public square, mistaking that for public opinion. Um, You also have a situation as journalism has become more of an elite profession and less of a working class profession. I mean, you have to think about who can afford to live in these big cities and Mm -hmm. to get work two weeks at a time, right? Mm -hmm. So the profession has become more elitist and not to the extent that it is in the States. I mean, in the States, they hire from the Ivy Leagues. 
But here it is still um, people who, for the most part, especially the younger generation, people who have some financial resources to fall back on. And so um, this is a certain kind of world view. And often having come through the universities and the universities are very ideological now. And um, so you're, everybody is kind of in this bubble. And I, um, my perception is that a lot of people um, aren't speaking a lot to people outside of that bubble. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was particularly dramatic during the pandemic where everyone, like most people, except for the host and the director were working at home and, um, on Zoom and on yeah. the phone. And you're just not having contact with a ton of people outside of outside of that kind of worldview. So that's a problem. There's yeah. also top-down problems. I mean, the CBC has made public a lot of its policies um, in terms of diversity and the way, you know, its policies are very clear. They're all on the website. Everyone can check them. But in my view, they do slant towards a particular ideology. And that, you know, so if you're getting that message from the top down as well, that this is the ideology that is supported. Um, I also think that there was a real sense during the pandemic of um, of a real kind of crisis mentality. I think people were at home, they were very isolated. As I said, they weren't exposed to a lot of different views and the stakes were very high. And um, I think that, you know, there was not enough of an effort within the building to try to bring in diverse perspectives, um, diversity of thought I'm talking about now. Yeah. And um, when you see that dynamic going on all around you and you maybe don't have secure work and the leaders in the newsroom have a particular view and the heads of the CBC have a particular view, I think all of these things, and you're on Twitter all day and you're getting that same view there. I think I think so much of what we're dealing with is groupthink. Mm. Well, that's a great uh, description of what you think might be at play here. Um, you know, and what you say, I find this extremely interesting that during the pandemic, uh, except for the host and the producer, everybody else was working from home. So they weren't having these conversations, which is kind of ironic because, you know, everybody thought that when, you know, when when uh, when the pandemic happened and everything moved to Zoom, technology would enable us to have these conversations you could connect with more people you know you you didn't necessarily have to make that trip to um toronto or ottawa or wherever it is that you uh, were going to uh, to have these conversations in person you could just do it now on zoom it was all organized within the workplace and so on and so forth but yet uh people but yet it reinforced this um this, you know, this this echo chamber uh, uh, of sorts where, you know, maybe people were just not even talking to each other and then they uh, were just uh, parroting the same points over and over again. Um, and that's that's a super interesting point. Um, and, and, and and so it's, it's kind of ironic, don't you think? Mm. I also think that um, that the work environment is extremely collaborative. And so if you have, you know, all stories, the story meetings are collaborative, scripts are often collaborative. You know, if you submit a script, it's gonna go through many, many different hands before it gets on air. And if nine out of 10 of those people see the situation the same way, have the same views and the same perspective, that story will continually be nudged further and further in that direction. And so I, I think that's sometimes hard for the public to understand just how subtle some of this can be. Another thing I think that is at play is 
within journalism right now, because journalism is so extremely competitive and because it is so conformist, there are certain views and, you know, you've seen this, the Overton window getting Mm -hmm. more and more narrow. Mm -hmm. There are certain views that are just considered kind of gauche, just like they're just out outside of sort of decent conversation. And you wouldn't want to be associated with those views. And Mm. um, there's a feeling of almost distaste, except that that list of views keeps growing and growing. Yeah. And that the the list of views is so out of sync with the public right now. These the ideology that's kind of behind lurking in the background is very unpopular one. And I don't think that that's widely recognized. Um, so some of this stuff is, is I think really difficult to get at Yeah. and, um, but I think it's worth getting at and, you know, the, what is not difficult to get at is the coverage. You can look at the coverage and you can see these Mm -hmm. things playing out in the coverage. You know, if, if the, if the network changes its approach and I sincerely hope that it does, you will see the change in the coverage. You will see the coverage being less ideological, less kind of uh, thrust in one direction, Mm -hmm. you know, more ideologically diverse. Um, And that is my hope for the CBC. So you said nine out of 10 people in that room are like pushing a certain uh, narrative or pushing a certain story. What happens to that one one voice that is dissenting? What happens to that person? What are the consequences uh, for that person for speaking up? Um, and let's say you speak up repeatedly, you just have an issue with the direction which uh, things are going in the newsroom. Um, what happens? And I ask this sincerely because I've never worked in a newsroom. I'm very much an outsider in journalism. I kind of just landed in this space. Um, uh, and I've always worked from home. So I don't, you know, I have, I've never, I don't really know what happens in a newsroom uh, per se. And so this is, uh, you know, it's just, a, and I'm sure our listeners would also be curious, you know, uh, what is the pro- process exactly? What, what do you mean? What's the process? As in, you know, how do they decide? I mean, this is, this is the story that we want to uh, push here, you know, is this, you know, we're not going to, um, you know, how do they make these decisions? You know, we're, we're, we're going to not going to, we're just going to ignore all of these other things that could potentially make this story fair, but instead we're going to stick to a certain narrative. We're going to uh, pick that narrative because we think we believe in it or for whatever reason we pick this narrative. And, and this lone dissenting voice is like, no, I don't think we should be doing narratives. Um, you know, that's let's leave that to the op-ed columnists. You know, as journalists, I don't think we should be doing narratives. We should just be focused on bringing the facts to light. So I'm wondering, I mean, I guess... I have two questions here. What what are the consequences to this dissenting voice? I mean, is that is is that is that uh, given the fact that you said this uh, Overton window is just you know just uh, um, you know uh, this this window in terms of what is considered uh, acceptable is you know has has really shrunk for one one thing and um, and and then you know exactly how are these things decided in a newsroom when we when we read something in the news think anyone would 
believe themselves to be pushing a narrative. I don't, I don't think that's how it's seen at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that people have, uh, you know, a certain set of facts and they have a certain perspective, particularly again to Twitter, you know, things are framed a certain way. Things are, you only see a certain set of views. You may be completely unaware of views outside of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I think that there, a lot of this is happening, uh, in many ways in good faith. People are, doing the best that they can with the information that they have. I just think the information is too limited right now. And I think the access to different perspectives in the public is too limited. Um, in terms of consequences, I would find that hard to speak to for two reasons. For one, um, I've, I've sort of made a commitment to not um, to not give anecdotal stories from my time there because I don't want to throw any of my colleagues under the bus. Yeah. Um, I also think that because of the nature of our work during the pandemic, because we were so atomized, because most of us were at home, I had a stint in the newsroom when I was directing uh, Metro Morning, but for the most part, I was at home. And the um, conversations that you're having on Zoom, I mean, you wouldn't know who is pushing back and who isn't a lot of the time, unless Mm -hmm. that person is in your story meeting. And so I, I think I think part of what happened, and I've heard this since I left, part of what happened is that all of the dissenting voices were so isolated within the network and didn't necessarily know that all of these other dis- dissenting voices existed. And I, I heard from a lot of people, of course, after I left, um, but I think that the nature of the way that we were working um, made it really difficult to know who was pushing back and who wasn't. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So, you know, let's, you know, just uh, talk about something that's been um, in the, uh, uh, you know, it's been in the news recently. It's the monk debates. Um, uh, And the monk debates is, uh, you know, very much an establishment platform. um, And they hosted uh, a debate called the mainstream media um, and um, uh, featuring Matt Taibbi, Douglas Murray, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, and uh, Michelle Goldberg, um, and um, and the question was, uh, don't uh, you know? Do you trust the mainstream media, or, do, or should you trust the mainstream media? And to the surprise of a lot of people, um, Taibbi and Murray uh, uh, prevailed over Gladwell and Goldberg uh, on this question. Um, in fact, I think there was a pre-event uh, vote of um, a, a vote that happened where. 48% supported the pro side uh, versus 52% for the con side. Um, and uh, Douglas and Taibbi uh, swung the vote 39% in their favor, um, ending with a pretty decisive win. And uh, Taibbi went on to write about this in a substack, and he said this was the most decisive route in the history of the event. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, were you at that debate, Tara? I was, yeah. And what were your, tell us, tell you, tell us what you thought about it. I, uh, I was actually invited to come to the debate, but I couldn't because I was uh, on my way to India. But what were your takeaways uh, from, from that? Um, and uh, were you at all surprised uh, that the, that the vote uh, went the way it did? Uh, yes, I was. I was very surprised. Okay. Um, as you say, uh, the majority of the audience at the beginning was against the idea that you should not trust the mainstream media, and the um, it was it was really quite an astonishing night, Rupa, because um, 
the sort of feeling I think many people had going into this is, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is a massive star mm-hmm. and Michelle Goldberg, New York times, that this was going to be a real kind of match of um, like a real face off. And it did not turn out to be that way at all. In fact, um, if anything, the performance from Malcolm Gladwell and Michelle Goldberg was, was quite embarrassing. And I found that uh, quite surprising, not as surprising as I might have a couple of years ago, but still quite surprising. Um, and what you saw during that debate was um, was a real sort of illustration of the the specific reasons why the mainstream media is losing trust. And we watched in real time as that public's trust was mm-hmm. eroded. And so there were a number of things on display there. I think there was a lot of mendacity on display, um, the a lot of bad faith arguments, particularly from Malcolm Gladwell, which was disappointing because I had liked him uh, a fair bit in the past. Um, you also saw a real uh, sense of condescension to the public. And um, of course, we know that from online and from the tone of a lot of media and journalists on Twitter right now, but to see it in a public forum was still quite shocking. Yeah. Um, you also saw a real kind of sense of self-absorption from uh, Malcolm Gladwell in particular. And the stakes were quite high at this particular time because, of course, we've just been through the Public Order Emergency Commission. We have just been through the trucker convoy uh, crisis this year. And I I think that um, the public is very finely attuned to the consequences of not having a trustworthy media. Media trust in Canada is at its lowest point in seven years right now. And uh, and yet you saw Malcolm Gladwell kind of grandstanding, kind of going for cheap laughs. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was a very strange event. And in particular, you also saw this kind of ideology that we have touched on in uh, Malcolm Gladwell accusing Matt Taibbi of being nostalgic for a time in which white men yeah, were in charge. Yeah, yeah. no, I uh, I noticed that. Like I um, I mean I I, I uh, heard it and I was very uh, shocked Uh, and it reminded me of an event that I was part of a few months ago and I was invited on a panel to talk about uh, misinformation and disinformation and uh, um, you know and I was completely um, um, you know just um, you know it was supposed to be a civilized panel discussion everybody comes with a different perspective an expert on misinformation disinformation who um, doesn't you know uh, really like me literally was spewing misinformation disinformation on the panel about me i mean you you couldn't and and you know you couldn't it couldn't get it didn't get better than that and i was appalled and you know and you had the moderator basically cheering this on this reminded me this this the monk debate this this particular monk debate reminded me of that experience uh, where you know you can just pretty much spew anything and I saw I saw the accusations I heard the accusations uh, Malcolm Gladwell made um, uh, uh, towards Matt Taibbi he deliberately mis I think he deliberately mispronounced his name a few times um, and then to to extrapolate from 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 uh, you know Matt Taibbi saying uh, you know I have this you know, Walter Cronkite was one of the most trusted uh, journalists. uh, And, you know, today you're not going to find that kind of uh, um, sentiment uh, if you were to go and, you know, go around asking people because a lot of, um, much of the public distrusts the mainstream media. And uh, for him to, um, uh, you know, from that to extrapolate 
this to like you know you're you're basically a white supremacist is what he was saying that you have this nostalgia for an era where there were mostly white people in charge and it was, it was just shocking and uh, it was and and like you i used to be a fan of gladwell but you know the, the the number of people that i used to admire once that list is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and <laughs> and uh, it's 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 very very disheartening so um what did you think of that i mean it was bizarre i know we're trying to make sense of it but uh the fact that you know a civilized discussion on you know what is ailing the mainstream media should be trusted let's debate this descends into um a group uh, you know one side not even listening to the other side and just making stuff up literally on on uh, you know in front of the audience yeah i mean i think the moment that i felt like things really turned completely was when Malcolm Gladwell accused Matt Taibbi and Douglas Murray of being conspiracy theorists. Mm. Um, That was kind of the most outlandish point of the night, I think. And it was such a, because Matt Taibbi and Douglas Murray had both performed so well, they had excellent examples. They were making excellent arguments. Uh, they were arguing just very well um, mm-hmm. and uh, and came across as, of course, very credible. And so to have the conspiracy theorist thing, I, you just heard the audience kind of cringe at that. And the, acoustic, the acoustics are quite good um, yeah. at, at that hall. And okay. it, there were moments where there was just complete silence and there were moments where you could just feel people going like, what? Um, and I think that uh, Michelle Goldberg and Malcolm Gladwell sort of failed to read the audience in that mm. respect. Um, but I, I, I do think, I do think part of the problem here is that when you narrow the field of acceptable speech and thought to the point that it is right now, that if you subscribe to the mainstream and are, um, are in that bubble and very much immersed in that and don't see perspectives outside of that and believe most of that kind of cluster of beliefs, um, you don't have a lot at your disposal to argue from because they're so, um, it's so circumscribed Mm -hmm. and so rote. And so your arguments just aren't very good arguments. And that was my feeling. Uh, I felt Michelle Goldberg was sincere, but I don't think she performed well. And I felt Malcolm Gladwell was pretty smug and superior and self-absorbed, but neither of them had particularly convincing arguments. And I think that's part of the consequence of the field of acceptable thought being narrowed so much. You just don't have that much to say. (laughs) Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, one line that really stuck with me, uh, I mean, Douglas Murray was on fire, literally, and uh, uh, he has he had some of the best lines and, uh, you know, in, in response to Gladwell, telling them to get their story straight, guys. Um, Murray said, well, why should we get our story straight? We're two different individuals. We think differently. We we have different views. Uh, you know, this idea that we should be in lockstep uh, and, you know, and that we should get our story straight is ridiculous. That really clinched it for me. I mean, I, you know, I came into this debate, obviously, supporting Murray and Taibbi, um, you know, but I was curious to see what the other side had to say, because you don't want to be in this echo chamber yourself when you're criticizing the echo chamber, right? And um, and I think that line really literally clinched it for me because that is um, 
basically, you know, it, it, it's a good summary of where we are now. You know, I find that uh, the mainstream media wants to be in lockstep. They, 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 there's this hive mind, there's this group think, as you, as you mentioned, um, on, on so many important issues uh, over the last uh, few years, including more recently the pandemic. Um, and and um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I was I was really struck by that line. What did you th- What did you think about that? I thought it was hilarious because yeah. I mean, if you look at Matt Taibbi's from the left, yeah, Douglas Murray is a conservative, mm-hmm. and so what is the expectation here that they're supposed to yeah. you know agree? I mean, they're they're arguing for a free press, for diversity of thought, for mm-hmm. you know diversity of perspective, and they're arguing that you know this new model that we've seen rise that Matt Taibbi chronicled in his book Hate Inc. of kind of going after one demographic is disastrous for Mm. journalism because you're now fighting to retain that narrow demographic instead of trying to speak to everyone. And that causes you to select different stories, to to select different views to put on the air. Like you're, you're, the whole thrust of it is for a narrow demographic of people instead of for everybody. And so the idea that that these two very different thinkers should should be in lockstep, as you yeah. say, sort of uh, exposes, yeah, exposes that kind of mistake. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think we kind of touched on this um, uh, earlier, but you know, why do you think the mainstream media has failed to uh, live up to what they ought to be doing? Uh, you know, that is you know, giving fair and unbiased and informative uh, coverage uh, that enlightens people rather than giving this pre-digested narrative um, that often tallies with the political establishment. And we saw that happen during the um, the truckers convoy, during the freedom convoy, uh, where pretty much, I mean, um, you know, I was astonished because, uh, you, you know, I, I used to, you know, I was based in India for almost 10 years before I returned to Canada. Um, and I thought the media there was bad. Uh, they're actually very honest uh, about where they're coming from. They just support the government. <laughs> That's it. You know, they're like, they're not pretending to be fair and uh, fair-minded or anything like that. They're just chilling for the government. They're very, very honest about it. Um, but here, I was just astonished. Like, what is going on here? Like, I, I live in the city and I'm walking around and I'm not seeing any of this stuff. I literally went out there looking for the bad stuff, but I couldn't find anything. Um and, uh, you know, so what, what, what do you think has happened here in Canada? Uh, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question. That's one of the questions I'm trying to get at in yeah. my podcast series right now on the independent press. So there's a lot of views mm-hmm. on this. I think one of the views I heard that I think is quite convincing is Holly Doan from Black Locks Reporter. And okay. one of the things she's saying is that um, this is an s- issue of skills in addition to many other things, right? And that the journalism used to be an apprenticeship model. Mm -hmm. And so you would be starting out on, you know, in a small town somewhere, you'd be covering the courts and the school board, and then you would move to a bigger town, and then you would move to the capital and, you know, cover the legislature. And then you would finally come to Ottawa and, you know, you'd come to Ottawa with 10, 15 years under your belt of, understanding how government works and but but now it it doesn't work that way at all it's not an apprenticeship and there are tons and tons of people who don't have the experience mm-hmm. and then you know it's also an issue i think of resources as well and you know this very well because i know you've done some of the investigative reporting which is the most resource intensive work we just as a profession don't have the resources right now like how many people do you think 
sat there and watched all 300 hours of POEC. Like, mm, mm-hmm. you know, who has the resources? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have to be honest, I didn't. Um, but I'm not like I'm, I'm an independent person, like, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't have the resources of a CBC or, you know, or maybe even the National Post. But, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the people are not, you know, the incentive structure is such that you're not putting that much work into these things. I mean, speaking of Holly Doan, I'm really struck by this. Her, her, the model is extremely simple, right? Uh, when you, uh, you know, I've interacted with her on Twitter a few times and she says, we just show up to these committee hearings and we, and we, and we write about it and we tweet about it. Why isn't the mainstream media at these committee hearings? What is going on? Like, I mean, it's so simple. I mean, you, you, what's the point in having this parliamentary press gallery pass, which I don't have? Um, uh, you know, what's the point in having that if you're not showing up for these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an excellent question. And I think their work they do is incredibly valuable. It's just so yeah. focused. Yeah. Um, I do think it's a, an issue of resources, for sure. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I mean, when I was at CBC, I was not an investigative journalist. I was a current affairs journalist, which mm-hmm. is putting, you know, the the news of the day into context. What does it mean? What does this mean for society? But I I did two stories a day every day. Yeah, every day. And, you know, if one of your stories falls apart, you start all over again. And so, yeah. The, the level of depth that you're able to go into on that story is, is like, I think about the reporting that you did on, um, on the trucker convoy and how you, you interviewed over a hundred people. I mean, mm, like yeah. this is, this is very resource intensive work. So that's, that's one thing. Another thing that I think about a lot, and this is something that Leighton Woodhouse, um, who is, has also been working with the free press, um, working on reporting out the Twitter files. Something he said to me is just the role of kind of enforcing on Twitter. And so if we're all on Twitter all day, every day, and this is how the media speaks to itself, you step out of line of the narrative Mm -hmm. one tiny little bit, and you can feel the effects of that immediately. Um, there's a real sort of the way he talks about it is it's the new kind of manufacturing consent in the digital age. I think there's something mm-hmm. very powerful to that. There's also the issue of class that we've just discussed. The fact that this is no longer a working class profession. This is more of an elitist profession. Yeah. And with that, the idea that, um, that people are living alongside, uh, the elites who are making the decisions and that, that there's not a separation in the way that, that that used to be that Mm. there's, and also with that, it's, it's become a status game, a power game, a popularity contest. All of those things are at play. I mean, there's a million ways to answer that question, but, Mm -hmm. but it is the question is like, what has happened and what do we do about it? Cause we need a working press for democracy. Well, I, uh, yeah, I mean, you said something about, um, um, you know, going against a narrative. Uh, I can tell you, um, um, you know, uh, many in the mainstream media were, you know, were, were nice to me before the protests. Uh, you know, they were civil, they were cordial, they were, uh, you know, generally very uh, nice. And uh, and then it all changed. Um, you know, all my invites to mainstream media um, um uh, you know, by from the mainstream media for uh, you know to appear on shows or whatever, all of that just stopped. It just completely stopped. Like I was just now, um, you know, uh, untouchable essentially. You know, I had crossed the Rubicon. You know, I, I there was no turning back, and and if that that can happen to me, 
um, you know, as an outsider, I mean, I guess it's easier to deal that way in that manner uh, when it when it's when it's an outsider, right? A freelancer, like you can just like just dismiss this person. But you know, I just wonder what what uh, you know. If, if say someone from the CBC decided to do something similar to what I did, would would that have had any um, encouragement? Would that would would that have had had uh, would anybody at the CBC would they have even entertained that possibility, that idea? Hmm. Well, there's still really good journalists in the yeah. CBC, and there's yeah. still lots of really good work getting. I mean, it's not Every just day. the CBC. Yeah, it's not. Just, I, I don't want to single them out, but you know, uh, but you know, in general, with the mainstream media, because apart from the National Post, I think they were, you know, fair, and they had some of their reporters go and speak to some of the people at the protests, and they were generally very sensible in their coverage. Um, everybody else, had, you know, were calling them seditionists and. Uh, um, you know, just just far right um, Nazis and whatnot. I mean, you you know you know you know you know how that went down. So you know what 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 exactly is you know the like what I'm trying to I think what I was trying to ask you is you know if someone in the CBC or someone in the mainstream media had decided to do something similar to what I did. Um, you know, what, what, uh, would, would, would that have been, uh, would, would that have even been entertained? I think it probably depends on the day. It depends on the team. It depends yeah. on which, which way the wind is blowing on Twitter. I mean, it probably depends on a hundred different factors. I mean, I think this stuff, the thing I keep trying to do all the time is just complicate the narrative around all of this, because I think it's very complicated. Yeah. And I think there's lots of really good journalists in the mainstream media. I know lots of people pushing back against, and what we, you and I are talking about are big trends, right? Yeah. Big trends. And I, I but in terms of the daily kind of minutia of it all, it's incredibly mm -hmm. complicated. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of people trying to navigate that system at all times. And so you're going to get different outcomes sometimes. And I do think there's lots of good work getting through. But I think on the whole, my experience was it was really hard to represent diversity points on air and it got harder. Um, but I do, I do think that um, I do think the tide is turning. I am starting to see, particularly in the last couple of months, um, signs that we are getting uh, a little bit more health back in the system as a whole, signs from the mainstream media that they are entertaining more views, you know, a lot of, not a lot, some of the stories that were totally off limits, that were taboo, have now become mainstream stories. I'm thinking about the lab leak theory. I'm thinking about the Hunter Biden laptop story, thinking about school closures. I mean, we are getting more discussion now. So I, I feel cautiously optimistic. Yet, yet, but we're yet at the same time, you know, you're not seeing discussions, uh, a, a discussion or coverage of the Twitter files, for example, uh, you know, there's just been silence. And in, in fact, I mean, any any time um, it's it's being covered in the mainstream media, it is to, you know, criticize Musk or you know or you know that he suspended an account and haha, you know, so much for free speech and uh, so on and so forth. So um, you know, I I, I I I I take your point that you know there is that the tide is shifting and, you know, this coverage of these things, um, you know, give you an example of this immigration. Um, you know, I've seen a spate of stories and op-eds uh, in, in places like the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, uh, and a bunch of other places 
actually cautioning, um, you know, and, and, and asking the question, do we really need to have 500,000 people coming into this country every year? Can, can our system really sustain it? Do we have the resources? Uh, can our healthcare system, which is on the verge of uh, collapse, uh, collapsing at this point, can it handle it? Now, had you made these points about a year ago, you would have been bracketed as a far-right, uh, anti-immigrant, racist, whatnot. But I'm actually astonished that, I mean, this is... Th- you know, if I were truly cynical, I would, you know, I would, I would say, you know, I would say, um, you know, and if I were, if I were like the left, you know, I would, I would say, ah, you know, this is just a sophisticated uh, way of saying that you are not for immigration, but I'm not going there. You know, I think these are very, this is a very important topic and it needs to be um, uh, discussed in the context, in that context. Yeah, we have to be able to discuss public policy in this country. Like we have to be able to discuss these things, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, to your point about the Twitter files, I I think that's a really important example. I was really disheartened to see um, legacy press journalists kind of line up to slag Matt Taibbi. I found that incredibly disheartening. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no universe in which this is not a big story. Calling it a nothing burger is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, Matt Taibbi is one of the best investigative journalists of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, calling him far right is ridiculous. He's been on the left his whole life. I mean, like, it's just, um, it's those sort of instances that I think really, like the public is not stupid. They're yeah. not stupid. And I think when arguments are made in such bad faith like that and in such a public forum as Twitter. It Mm -hmm. just does not help our cause in the media at all. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the best things the journalists could do, and you saw this during the trucker convoy crisis as well, there, you know, some of the coverage um, was not as hysterical as some of the other coverage. And yet so many of the journalists were on Twitter all the time saying, Um, pretty extreme things and it compromises their own coverage. Like, I think, I think one of the best things we could all do is just stop on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But, you know, I'm not even sure if that's, you know, that's enough at this point, because I, I feel like, you know, there's an ideology has really taken hold. Uh, There's a lot of uh, self-flagellation. There's a lot of, you know, we're, uh, and we'll we'll come to this. I mean, this is going to be my next question. It's the um, you know, it's 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 not just media houses, but you know, even universities have bought into this uh, ideology, um, whatever this uh, woke progressive ideology. Um, and I I wonder if you saw the uh, this Carleton University School of Journalism event on online hate, uh, where the where the battlefield is everywhere. Um, um, and and I and I that 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 title itself was. Um, you know, quite something, and um, you know, but but what struck me about this, um, among many other things, was the fact that not a single person from the Indian independent media was invited there, uh, and they were all insiders singing the same tune, um, and this is at Canada's top journalism school, um, and you can already see kind of the indoctrination happening here uh, of the next generation of journalists, right? So I watch all of these media panels because I'm mm-hmm. I'm ever hopeful that we will have a moment of sincere self-reflection in this yeah. country. Yeah. Um, that one I found particularly puzzling and particularly concerning mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. Um, as you say, the ideological capture. And like I say this all the time, I'll say it again. I come from the left. Um, 
But this particular cluster of views is not popular even with the broader left. Again, I call it woke. I know people find that term offensive and upsetting. I don't know what else to call it. We have to call it something. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> but, you know, from the very moment, so the head of the Carleton Journalism School opens with a land acknowledgement. Yes. And with a trigger warning. Yep. With a commitment to commit the journalism school and the wider profession of journalism to the dismantling of white supremacy and colonial mindsets. And with the mention of a higher, like a, a higher biodiversity category of Indigenous journalism. Of course, I want to see Indigenous journalists in this country. Of course. Yeah. But but this is a particular, like all of these are signals of allegiance to a particular political ideology. And they are coded as such in language, in um, in kind of core tenets, and the public recognizes them as such. I get mail all the time from the public on this. And, all, you know, I come from the left a lot from people on the left about this. This is not what the public wants from us as journalists. They do mm -hmm. not want this. They want us to go out there and, as Matt Taibbi says, do the best that we can to reflect reality, to go out, find out what the facts are to the best of our ability, which is, as you know, hard enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do that and let the public make up their own mind. This kind of signaling of political allegiance just puts the public off. And I, I find it astonishing that there's no awareness of that. It is. It is uh, quite extraordinary. I was, um, I mean, speaking about this panel, uh, there was a similar panel um, a few months ago, shortly after the protests and, um, and, and you know, talking about the uh, protests. Um, I forget what it, what it was called, something about the mainstream media, uh, um, um, you know, um, something about the mainstream media's coverage of the protests. Anyway, they forgot to invite me. I was the only uh, person, I mean, the, everybody else on the panel was were the usual suspects. And then there was outrage on social media saying, how is it that you didn't invite the person who actually wrote about the protests and had a very different take on it? And then I got a last minute invite and then they uh, and they put me on the panel. Uh, but, you know, it was when when you're when your starting point is that you just want to speak among yourselves um, and you don't even consider that there could be another point of view out there. There's another journalist uh, doing something different uh, when you don't even think that is relevant for the for discussion uh, where's the introspection going to happen right yeah i watched that one too <laughs> yeah I yeah that one too yeah i um yeah i mean i could I couldn't be there in person but you know i i, I did uh did it on zoom and uh it was fine but you know um but you know i i was just uh, very disappointed that you know it was it was once again you know you're just speaking among yourselves like what why are you doing that? Like, I hate, I I mean, I, I like being in a group of people who are always agreeing with me, but I find that boring after a certain point. It's like, you know, come on, challenge me, you know, make me change my mind about something. Yeah. The other thing that I would say about the Carlton panel, which I think is important to bring up, and I know you yeah. raised this point on Twitter, is that to equate um, online abuse, yes. which I think is an issue. I, I take it seriously. Mm -hmm. I, I know I've seen on Twitter some of the stuff you've had to deal with. I don't like that any journalist has to deal with that. I take it seriously. But to equate that to being in a war zone, literally, literally, is yep. 
is hyperbolic, it's hysterical, and it's unhelpful. And I think it doesn't help our cause. If you go to a public that already distrusts us and say being on Twitter is causing us trauma and, you know, and again, I don't want to diminish like actual threats of violence. No one should have to deal with that, but we, can we keep, can we keep, um, a measured tone about all of this and Mm. not, you know, um, hyperbole just doesn't help our case at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, um, uh, yeah, it's just that's just massively disappointing. You know, here was another opportunity to actually, um, uh, you know, have a sensible discussion, but uh, it veered into something totally uh, different. And yeah, the war zone analogy, I can never get over that. Um, I, I, I mean, actual wartime correspondents, war correspondents, uh, don't take to Twitter and say, you know, I'm, I'm being abused online. I mean, how silly would they look? Um, it, it's just, uh, it's just r- r- ridiculous. But anyway, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Tara. One final question for you: When you left the CBC, um, you know, you took a very courageous decision to you know, give up this job uh, and strike out on your own. As an independent journalist, um, you know, as you know, it's very precarious um, and you're not backed up by the big resources of a large corporate uh, media house. Um, Looking back, do you feel you made the right decision? And um, how do you see your career and for that matter, um, um, you know, the rest of us who are in the independent space evolve over the coming uh, few years? I do feel I made the right decision. Mm-hmm. I felt, uh, I feel I made the only decision that I could make. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I feel very optimistic about the independent press. I am so, uh, I'm finding it so satisfying and so rewarding to be able to follow my journalistic instincts, to do the stories that I mm-hmm. think are important, to be able to speak in a straightforward, uh, kind of free way mm-hmm. on the podcast to do some of the media criticism, which I think is necessary in a healthy democratic society, which is never going to make you popular mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. will always probably limit your employment opportunities going forward. Yeah. But I think it's a really necessary thing. And there are some of us doing it. And I think that's healthy for democracy. Um, I think there are I think it's a really exciting time in independent media. I think that some of the people who are kind of blazing the trail right now, Barry Weiss, and you are now going to the, you know, the free press. It's very exciting. I think that there's real movement. I think there's real hunger from the public Mm -hmm. and uh, for this kind of journalism. I think there are downsides. Um, Again, resources. I would have liked to watch all 300 hours of the POEC commission. Um, I did not get on the ground in Ottawa and I would have really liked to. Mm -hmm. So there, there are resource issues when you're just one person of the, what you can cover. I don't do investigative journalism. I would sometimes really like to, but, um, but I think that overall, um, Overall, it's been an incredibly satisfying time for me. And I think one of the most satisfying things about it is all of the mail that I get from the public. I've never gotten this level of mail in my entire career. And um, it's incredible to read people's stories and to get that huge kind of depth of experience across the country and now in the States as well. And I I feel, um, yeah, I just feel incredibly satisfied to be part of that conversation. 
Yeah, well, I'm really glad that you're part of that conversation and uh, and for taking that courageous decision when you did. And uh, and you know your Substack um, is is amazing. I often go to it, and, uh, and there's a lot of great content there. And uh, you know, thank you for doing what you do. And uh, and you know, it was a real pleasure having you on my show. Um, and uh, I'm just so glad that we had this conversation. And thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. It's so a pleasure, Ruba. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Tara. Thank you.